What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode one of Be The Number. I'm Spencer Aguiar, better known on Twitter as Key Off Sports, and I'm extremely excited to be joined by my co-host, Josephine Chang. Josephine, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. How have you been? I've been doing really well, too. I mean, this is something we've had in the works for a while now, so I'm really excited to get this launched and for us to finally get this out you know, into production with this. But before we get started, I do want to give a little bit of an introduction on both of our backstories and what you can expect out of this show, because I think it's important for the viewer to know a little bit about us. I know some people know a little bit about me on it, but I want people to know your backstory with it. So I'll let you go first, Josephine, and then I'll touch on my background and what the show will be about afterwards. All right. Sounds good. So as Spencer said, I'm Josephine. Um, you can find me on almost all of my social media platforms by jchain1020. Um, so I was born and raised in Southern California, grew up playing golf with my dad. It was kind of a hobby that we shared, um, ended up really loving it, fell in love with the sport, uh, took it competitively, which my dad really didn't like because then I started beating him, but that's another story. Um, so been playing since I was seven, competing since I was 12, got a full ride scholarship to play here in Lexington, Kentucky for the University of Kentucky. Uh, played for them for five years, which was nice because I got an extra year with COVID. Um, and then I did end up getting injured. So that kind of derailed my plans to play professional golf. But that's okay, because now I am co-hosting this podcast with Spencer. I am applying to medical school and we'll see where that goes. But I'm excited to be here. I um, am pretty new to DraftKings. Uh, Spencer gave me like a quick rundown a couple of times and I think I have a good sense, but I'm really excited to kind of learn from him and learn as I go. And I'm sure that a lot of viewers, if this is your first time, we can learn together. So I'm really excited. Yeah, I think that's something interesting that you said, Josephine, because I know golf works as a whole, like, you know, they have a really big following. Not everybody is viewing that site in the perspective of DFS or betting or any of those things. So there's a lot of things we're going to talk about. It's going to be a learning process. You know, I, I one of my favorite things is teaching. I build a model every single week that I give out to the public for people to make their own research with it. I was telling Josephine about that. And it's just one of my favorite things. It's a way for the public to create their own opinions and do their things. And and my backstory is I'm born and raised in Las Vegas. I started with a poker background at a young age, but quickly moved to the sports betting side of things. I've been in this particular sector of freelance writing and producing content for nearly four years. I was originally covering NFL, NBA, and PGA from a betting and fantasy perspective, but decided to transition to golf only about a year ago. As I said, I make weekly models that I release on Twitter. They're user-friendly, meaning anyone can make a copy and start handicapping the event for themselves. Um, and as Josephine mentioned, she was a world-class college golfer that sees the course under a different lens. And I think her athletic background mixed with my statistical prowess makes us a perfect combination to host GolfWorks' first DFS and gambling show. So I'm really excited about this opportunity that we have, Josephine. I'm thrilled that we're doing this together. And I, I think this is something unique that we can put out in the space and something that a lot of people can learn and get better with. And at the end of the day, the goal is always to make money. And that's my biggest thing is I want to provide insight to everybody as we go along with it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And like, as you said, Definitely user-friendly. I've been playing around with it. He sent it to me from a couple of tournaments ago and then obviously for uh, the WGC as well. And it's kind of fun to just tweak it and play around. There's a lot of stuff going on. So I'm excited to get to explain it to you all and, you know, see where this goes. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's the thing with it. It's like, I don't like the the wording of being a tout. 
I think a tout is somebody who tries to, you know, sell you the picks and is trying to give you the information. Like Josephine and I are obviously going to give you what we think is the best way to approach a tournament. But at the end of the day, this is something that we're trying to provide information and tools for the for the just the general user to look at this tournament and, and try to look under it under their own lens with it. So I'm really excited about getting started. Let's move into this week. We have the WGC FedEx St. Jude Invitational. It's hosted at TPC Southwind, 7,244 yards, par 70 with Bermuda grass. 66 golfers in this no-cut field. And the venues hosted the last two iterations of this week's WGC, with Justin Thomas winning at 13 under in 2020 and Brooks Kepka at 16 under in 2019. And then if we look at it just from a regular stop on tour before that, Dustin Johnson took home the title in 2018 at 19 under, and Daniel Berger won back-to-back titles in 2016 and 2017. So I guess my first question to you, Josephine, is you obviously look at these things a little bit differently than I do with it. And for, for the record, we have not talked about what either one of us likes this week. I don't know what you're looking at from a stat perspective. You don't know what I'm looking at from a stat perspective. But I would like you to dive in a little bit and explain what metrics did you find important? What did you use for stats? And uh, we'll go through there and, and talk about some of that. Yeah, absolutely. So I definitely took more of a golfer's approach. Um, not going to lie, I kind of looked up on YouTube some old highlights and stuff just to see like impact off grass and everything because I do I, I do follow the LPGA a little bit more than the PGA Tour. So that's going to change, obviously. Um, but as you said, Bermuda greens. So to me as a golfer, that means a lot of grain. Um, your ball is going to get pulled by the grass a lot more than, say, on bent, which is like I would say the gold standard when it comes to putting. Um, but also for fairways, I looked at that grass as well. And so they're playing off a of zoysia, which to me is probably one of my favorite grasses to play off of. Um, it's kind of fluffy, a little more coarse. And so your ball usually gets a good wide no matter where it is. And so as a golfer, to me, that means um, these players, they're good. They're going to be able to have a good lie and just kind of nip it off and, and create a lot of spin and probably be a little more aggressive than other courses. Um, just because they know that they're going to catch the ball well and be able to generate that spin to stop it by the pin. Um, and so because of that, I was actually, the stats that I looked at are strokes gained based on approaches as well as the proximities. And so um, at least here at UK, we look at a lot of our um, approaches uh, from like, say, 150 to 175 and below that. And we kind of look at just how close are we able to hit it from those yardages and maybe do we need to work on certain um, distances? And so at this tournament, it seems as though 150 to 175 yards and 175 to 200 was the uh, yardage distance from most approaches. And so I threw that into my model and kind of was like, well, I want to see players that are hitting them close from those distances, giving them good chances for birdies. so just, I'm a very approach heavy on this tournament, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And just also based off of Bermuda and knowing that the greens are pretty tiered, they're pretty undulating. I also threw in potting a little bit, um, which actually I watched a couple of your old podcasts and you don't seem, I don't know, if, correct me if I'm wrong. You don't really seem to like to look at putting as much. Is that true or am I... Uh, no, you're you're 100% <laughs> correct with that. I, I think putting is one of the most volatile statistics that you can find. One of the things I'm trying to find when I build a model is I want to find guys that are good ball strikers. I, I'm 100% with you. I'm looking for approach play too. I weighted that heavier than I did anything else. 
I just think that when you're looking at these tournaments, like a really good putter can putt poorly, a re- you know, vice versa on that also. So I'm kind of just trying to find guys that can hit it from a certain proximity range, guys that are more likely to give themselves opportunities to score. And then from there, we kind of let the putter fall where it's going to fall. Like one of the things I do is in my in-tournament perspective with it, when I do my model for that, like I'll put in some of my baseline putting stats just so there's a general rule of like, you know, this guy's over or under his expected value of what he's been doing. But from a pre-tournament perspective, I don't put much weight into it. And I'll discuss that in a second. But I really like the point that you brought up about the zoysia grass. One of the things is, is it will be somewhat penal, I believe, in the morning in the rough. I think when it gets wet, it's going to be a little stickier. It's going to be a little bit harder to control. In the fairway, though, you're 100% correct. You really can't get a bad lie. It's almost like the best way to describe it is your ball is teed up. So you're going to be able to control your spins. You're going to be able to control all of that. So I think good iron players at the end of the day are really what I'm going to be looking for. And, you know, before I get into what caught my eye from a statistical perspective, I only waited course history over the last two seasons. Not only did the quality of the field become enhanced during that time, but we also saw the move from Bent to Bermuda, which Josephine just told us about right now. Um, you know, I don't want to go back and look at past versions of this tournament under a bent grass green. I don't think that that's as important. I don't mind. It's in my model. If you make a copy, you could, you know, look at it. It's not that it's not there, but it's not something that I'm going to overly wait. The other thing I notice is eight of the last nine winners have led the field tee to green. I'll get more into why that is in a second, but we quickly see putting is de-emphasized. And, you know, there is a little bit of undulation to these greens. I don't think it's so pronounced that we have a problem. But the bigger thing is, and and one of the reasons why I I think putting is a little bit not as heavy as you would think, they're really small greens. Like, we want greens in regulation. We want guys, like, if you're on the green, you're going to have an opportunity to make the putt. If you're off the green, you're going to be scrambling around the green with it. So I started with 25% on strokes gain tee to green, which is about as high as I'll ever go on an individual stat. I sometimes like to get cute and recalculate the off the tee, the approach, the around the green numbers to mimic mimic the historical trends at a property. But I just took my basic baseline totals for there. So I have 25% there, which is high. I did 15% on ball striking. That is the PGA Tours definition of the stat being a mixture of total driving and GIR percentage. I essentially took a 65-35 split of distance over accuracy and then took that number and did a 70-30 advantage towards GIR. Um, these are extremely small greens, as I said, and they are hit in regulation 6% below tour average stops. Um, I have 15% on weighted proximity. That is a redistribution to try and find key proximity ranges at TPC Southwind. I won't bore everyone with the exact breakdown, but Josephine kind of did allude to it a little bit. 63.3% of irons come from 175 yards and in. And 25.9% of shots come from 150 to 175. If you don't want to get as in-depth with it, I do think that 150 to 175 range is probably your best bet of where to to put some of your weight onto it. Uh, I did 15% on both strokes gain total at TPC courses and weighted par for scoring. As you can kind of tell, this is a pretty flat build. There's a lot of 15% across the board for me on this when we remove T to green. And I'm just mostly trying to pinpoint a specific skill set that hits greens, excels with their irons, you know, statistically fit the course. It's just essentially what this is, is this is just a much more 
convoluted answer to what Josephine just said to this. Like, give me the guys that are going to hit greens in regulation. Give me the guys that are going to give themselves a chance to make a birdie putt and the guys that are best with their irons. And then I did TPC properties. And while this is a little bit more difficult of a TPC property than most of them, I think all of them have similar designs and, and quirks to them. Um, the weighted par four is 80% par four scoring and 20% bogey avoidance. Nine of the 12 most challenging holes land here. And the bogey avoidance incorporates the 76 bunkers and 11 water hazards that come into play. That's the one thing that's very important to note. This is not the most difficult track in the world. When you look at the actual birdie opportunities of it, birdies are going to be made. It's just big numbers come into play because of the water. And they're not that simple to avoid. They're, they're going to come into play all the time with it. And then that kind of just leads me to my last thing. I wrapped it up with 10% on birdie or better and 5% on putting from five to 10 feet. I rarely weigh something under seven and a half percent, especially a stat like putting, like I just said, like I'm not going to normally go that route, but I just think it's a really good range to look at. It's going to emphasize birdie makers. And it's also going to emphasize guys that, you know, put themselves into that perplexing range of like, they need the safe par from seven and a half feet. And I'm trying to find guys that are more likely to do that. So um, you know, kind of just to wrap that up, just a simple answer, because that's obviously a long answer to be given. Approach play, GIR percentage, a little bit of birdie making, because this is a no-cut tournament. We do need scoring at the end of the day. A little bit of bogey avoidance on par fours. And, and that's about it for me. I mean, I don't know if you have anything else you would like to add to that. No, I was actually just going to add like what you said with the bunkers and the water hazards. So um, one thing that I kind of started to dive into, um, but didn't really know how to weight it on like a model was kind of looking at um, off the tee almost. It seemed as though that on this course, um, off the tee, like it seems pretty wide on most holes, but there are some specific par fours that play really hard as well as par threes. And so to me, um, I mean, we'll get into this later when we go through the models, but there are some well-known people that, uh, on the PJ Tour that just hit it a long ways. And at first I was like, oh, maybe they can really take advantage of this course. And then I started to really break down each hole and I realized actually it's almost more of a target golf off the tee in the sense that they have to lay up to certain yardages due to uh, like penalties and things like that. And so just for you to say it within your stats, I was like, ah, that's how you weighed it and that's how you looked at it. So, you know, of yeah, course, I mean you could see... <laughs> Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but you're 100% correct with that. And it just comes down to how you exactly want to incorporate these things. There's different ways to do it. I took the route of the 65-35 split of distance over accuracy, which is just something that I do specifically in my model. I mean, there's other ways to go about it. You can look at good drive percentage. Um, you can make your own combination that's a little bit more weighted towards distance or accuracy with it. But I agree with you. Like, There are penalties that are going to come into play. And I think it's important that you can't just like, you know, DeChambeau is a really good example of this. DeChambeau is going to want to bomb it on every single hole. And I'm not so sure that's the best way to play this sort of a property. I think the water is going to come into play on, a, on 11 different opportunities for him. And, you know, it's it just, it's a problem. And, and we're going to need some semblance of the two things. And that's why I like doing a 65-35 split. You could make an argument a little bit less or a little bit more. I think that's a good baseline for it. But Let's move on to the actual players and talk about this tournament and the people that are in it. So we have six players that are $10,000 or above. We're led by Colin Morikawa at 11000 Xander Shifley comes in at 10800 Brooks Kepka at 10600 
Jordan Spieth at 10,400, Dustin Johnson at 10,200, and Rory McIlroy at $10,000. I will let you start with this, Josephine. Anybody stick out to you in a good or a bad way? Anybody that you liked this week? So looking at this top, I mean, these are all of your top players that are trending. They're doing really well right now. They're the names in the households that you're going to know. Um, so looking at it, I mean, they're pricey. That's without a doubt. But um, looking at it, I mean, number one, you got to look at Colin Murakawa. Like, he has been playing so well. He's been trending upwards. Um, and I just think that at the end of the day, I, I feel like everyone's going to want him. So, like, right now we're going off of some ownership percentages that aren't super um, – uh, there's not a bunch of lineups out yet, um, but I'm looking at it. I'm thinking, yeah, he's a great solid pick, but I feel like people are going to start to really like pick him up. Um, so I was just there kind of trying to weigh if there's really much of a benefit. But of course, that's something that you're going to know better than me. Um, and then looking at it, I actually wanted to ask you about Dustin Johnson up there being at 10,200. I just with the way that I weighted my model, um, he didn't come out super high. I mean, he's not bad. I was wondering if maybe you thought the same thing or if you were confused at why he was up so high. I have some really interesting stats about Dustin Johnson, and I tweeted them out a couple weeks ago for it. So Dustin didn't grade – He for me, he's 12th overall, which, I mean, technically he's a negative value based off of that. But there's a few things I like about him that I think we should look a little bit deeper into. So I tweeted out that I thought this was the perfect track for him to win at a couple weeks ago. The reason for that is we see his two biggest issues reduced at this property, which is par five scoring and long iron play. So DJ is almost 11% below his 2018 total in par five birdie or better percentage, which stems from him being nearly six feet worse in proximity from 175 plus yards. But luckily for him, 63.3% of irons come from 175 and in here. So I think there's a reason to be bullish about his chances. We saw him win this tournament in 2018. Granted, not the WGC version of it, but that's not something I'm going to count against Dustin. We know when Dustin's on, he's arguably the best player in the world. Um, I, I think Dustin actually makes a lot of sense as a GPP target if you're trying to look for it. I think there's a lot of people that are going to take that mindset of his form hasn't looked that good. And there's really no arguing against it, but I don't think it's as bad as the general public believes. And I do think that there's upside for him when we just reduce, you know, there's only two par fives instead of four. You're not going to be hitting everything from. 175 plus yards. So I think these are things that just kind of come into play for him. And, and as far as what you said about Colin Morikawa, it's hard not to like Morikawa this week. Like he grades extremely well in everything I'm looking for. He's first in strokes gained T to green, as well as being the top player in approach, weighted par four scoring, overall birdie or better percentage, weighted proximity, GIR percentage. So I kind of think that he makes a lot of sense to play. I mean, at the end of the day, we still need to have the people that we think are most likely to win. Um, you know, a guy like Brooks Kepka is so Morikawa was two for me in my model. Kepka was number one for me. The problem is Kepka's trending towards 25 to 30% ownership at this point. I'm not saying don't play him. I think there's a lot of credence around playing Kepka, but you know, you can make an argument he's a better cash game play for that reason. It just he has three top twos at this venue. Um over the last, sorry, my thing froze, uh, over the last five years. So, you know, he's a guy that I just think is is going to be popular for a reason. That's not somebody that I'm necessarily looking to take on. And then essentially, if we just go back from there, like part of the problem with this is we're going to have to condense our core. 
just because there's only 66 players, we can't play everybody at the top. But by condensing the core, it's not really that simple to do it with all these names. 15 of the top 18 players in this tournament are inside the top 18 of my model. So that's just, that's a range that it's like, you're not going to find, you know, wild deviations in value there. I think speed is fine. We'll get to Justin Thomas in a second uh, in the next section, but those are guys that don't hit a bunch of fairways, but if they can, they can find success here. Um, you know, I think Rory's more of the wild card at $10,000. I, I love the ownership. I love the price in GPPs. And I believe that either, you know, him or Justin Thomas may open up the ability to get a little bit more diversity and play two guys at the top of the board. I, I would say the one person that I'm just not really that interested in would be Xander. He's fourth for me in my model, but I mean, I have concerns. He just had his gold medal winning performance. Like I'm not going to negatively weight him, but he's coming from Japan over to this. We have seen in the past that water hasn't necessarily been the best for him. Um, at, at the Masters, he dunked it in the water in contention. At TPC Scottsdale, he dunked it in the water winning contention. And if he's in contention, you're going to like where you're at with him. But I just think I can make more of an argument of why to play every other person in this range. You know, I think Spieth for cash makes a whole ton of sense. I think Rory and DJ are contrarian GPP plays that you might be looking at. And that's in like large field, massive entry. If you're building 150 lineups. Like those are two guys that kind of differentiate yourself. And then I think Morikawa and Kepka are kind of just fine across the board. I don't have a problem playing them. I mean, really the argument against Kepka is the ownership, but that's not a reason necessarily. Like not all chalk and all popular plays are bad. So I, I think there's credence to all those names kind of in that range. If Xander beats me, he beats me and everybody else. I'm going to kind of, I, I guess it's interesting to say, like, I know I just said like you want to diversify, but I do think at the top, you can get a little bit more sporadic in the plays you make. And at the bottom of it, you can kind of crunch down your core in that direction too. Like I, when I look at this board, there's a lot of guys that are lower down on the board that I don't really want any part of. So, you know, if I'm just picking three to seven guys in that lower range, like I've already condensed it down enough there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, looking, looking at these top like 10,000 and above, I definitely agree with you. You can't really go wrong with any of them, just with their stats, they're solid players and they're at the top and they're the most expensive for a reason. Um, but I will have to say like with Xander, I did not think about the fact that he's coming back from Japan and just like winning gold medal, probably just enjoying his life right now. I, I really didn't think about that. So he actually, I think he's like ninth with my model in the way that I weighted things. Um, and I just said like, he's coming off, he's got momentum, but I guess coming from a, from Japan that actually might play a role. Just thinking about like, I struggled when we would travel back to back tournaments with three hour time change. So um, something to think about, never really thought about that. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, he's fourth in my model. I guess the bigger way to describe it too is he's the second highest priced person. So mm -hmm. you have negative EV there if you're looking at that. He does have a sixth here in 2020, 27th in 2019. Those are the two WGCs. He has a 52nd in 2017. As I said, that's not really something I'm gonna be looking for, but. You know, at 10% ownership, him and Rory are going to be the two guys that I, I think will be the least owned of the group. But I, I'm kind of under that same mindset. Like, these are the top price guys for a reason. Um, Spieth for cash makes a whole ton of sense. Like, at 20% ownership, roughly, I think, you know, Spieth is fine to play there. Kepka, you can make an argument one way or another. And then Morikawa, to me, is the really good pivot away from Kepka if you're trying to do it. Like, 
I'll take 10% less ownership on a guy that I think is just as likely to win this tournament. And you even see it with the betting odds. Like both of them are 12 to 14 to one everywhere you look. So I think anytime you talk about a course where irons and proximity and all of that is being weighted more heavily, Morikawa is the best player in the world for that. So uh, that's where my mind's at that at there. Sorry, but let's move down to the $9,000 range. And it is led off by Justin Thomas at $9,900. We have DeShambo, which we talked about at $9,500. There's Matsuyama at $9,400. Cantley at $9,300. Berger at $9,200. We have a couple other guys in that range. I guess for me, I'll start it off this time. Ustazen's been on fire with six top 18s over his past seven tournaments, including four top threes. I think it remains a steady play for cash games. Cantlay at $9,300 has been someone that continues to be perplexing to me. My model loves him on a weekly basis. I picked him to win the Masters. I picked him to win the Open Championship. He missed both of those cuts. The results haven't exactly followed for him. I think this is a really good setup, though, if he turns it around. And then Berger is the second highest projected on player for a reason. His back-to-back wins were followed up with a second when he got to return for the WGC in 2020. And these par 70 layouts that aren't so grueling have always been where he finds his best success. I guess the one guy I would want to talk about is Justin Thomas at the top. And one of the things I like about Thomas is I think he possesses, this could be a completely different tournament. If he came in with better form, you could make an argument that he could be the highest priced guy guy in this in event. Like him, Rom. Rory, Dustin, maybe more so of the past. Those are guys that always are rotating of where they are at the top of the board, depending on what kind of form they're in. And while, you know, Justin is the defending champion of this event, I think the form of 19th, 42nd, 40th, miscut over the last 10 weeks suggests a little bit of a different feel than what he's actually producing. So we're going to look at about 12% ownership on him currently. That number could change. We know him as one of the best no-cut players in the world. But Thomas has gained or gained 3.091 shots off the tee and approach at the Olympics and finished 68-65 for a robust nine under weekend. You know, we've seen him average a little less than five shots tee to green in trackable events since his player championship win. And it's really just the fact that he has no top 10 since that victory for white ownership is hovering at around the 12% that I mentioned here. I think the no cut narrative is a reason to look for him. And I think that if he can get hot with the putter, And that's really the one thing with Thomas that we look for. There's two things that hold back Thomas's game. He needs to find fairways and he needs to make putts. And so if we think this is a course that putting is neutralized or devalued in any sense with it, I think Thomas is the contrarian dart throw here that nobody's going to want to play based off of his recent form. And I think like we saw it at the Players' Championship, he lost, you know, five or six strokes putting two starts before winning that tournament. And he goes out at the Players and he wasn't the greatest putter. I mean, he gained about a stroke there but he goes out and he wins the tournament. And it's just like his upside is unrivaled with what he produces in birdie making from the rest of these guys. So I really like what Thomas adds. I guess the other one I would add to it is Paul Casey was so bad coming into this tournament last year. It's kind of why we saw him come 67th place. He had missed two cuts previously before it. I think it's just a really good fit for him if he can avoid big numbers. Um, That's kind of where I'm at with it. I'm curious to hear what your mindset is at. Yeah, actually, um, if you had let me start off on this section, I would have said the same thing about Justin Thomas, just looking at it like not the best form. I was a little curious about his ownership, why it seemed to be so low, considering that like he's defending champion. The course seems to set up well for him with a 12th place finish in 2019, obviously winning it in 2020. And so um, to me, just like looking at his stats and I think I was like he this course sets up well for him, sets up well for his game. Um, 
so it, it's surprising to me to to see that ownership but i i just really like justin thomas um maybe i'm a little biased obviously playing for kentucky and <laughs> and all of that but i think he he would be a solid pick and that's just someone that i really enjoy in this nine thousand dollar bracket um and then it's Another person I would have brought up is obviously we talked about it a little in the intro, but just Bryson. Um, I was was not very surprised that not a lot of people are kind of picking him up for this just because of what we talked about earlier. He hits it a long way and like you've you can notice how his game from when he started to now, it seems to lack the finesse he used to have um, in terms of just uh, like approaches and around the green. And now he just wants to hit it super duper far. And this isn't a course that that gives him an advantage. Um, so my model ranked him pretty well on that. Um, someone else, uh, I wanted to talk about actually was Hideki. Um, and so obviously he looked good at the Olympics last day, putting got the best of him. Um, but I just, I feel like his game has been trending well almost. And, and I've always liked him as a player, but that also might be a little biased just because when I was having trouble with my swings a couple years back, um, I was too quick at the top. And so for a whole year, my swing thought was actually pause like Hideki. And so ever since then, I just love watching him play. I love just thinking about it. So he's got a, he's got a spot in my heart. Um, and then you mentioned Paul Casey. I didn't dive too much into his stats, um, but I think that's just because I saw kind of his last two finishes at the WGC and they weren't phenomenal, especially last year. And so I was like, oh, my model ranked him pretty high. Ownership is decent. So I was like, okay, I'm sure Spencer will touch on it. And he did. So <laughs> that was kind of my $9,000 bracket. Um, just looking at it, I really like Justin Thomas. Hideki's got a spot in my heart. Um, and oh, you you did also mention Usazen. Um, I enjoy just the way that he plays his game. And so I think this course does set up really well for him, as you had mentioned. And obviously last year he placed pretty well. So we know that he probably enjoys the look of this course. Um, so that's really all I've got here. Yeah, and, and like the thing is, is as I mentioned, everybody in this $9,000 and above range, they're all inside the top 18 for me. I mean, there's 15 players that are in that list. And it's like, we're going to find very small differences of where the value is. And you're going to have to make decisions. Like, we're, as I said, we can't play everybody here. So it's going to come down to game type, what you're exactly looking for. I think a guy like Casey, yes, the last result is kind of worrisome. But two miscuts going into that, I'm not going to hold that against him. I think the ownership looks really nice for him. I think Scotty Scheffler, I know we didn't bring him up at 9,100. He's going to be popular, but... I don't have a ton of negative to say about him. I mean, like, unfortunately, I know that's what nobody wants. Like, there's no natural huge fade for me. I think there's guys that are better cash game plays, guys that are better GPP plays. Like, I'm always going to lean towards Louis being a better cash game play just because we know that uh, he's never won in America before. I mean, he has his open championship, but that's something that's worrisome to some extent with it. I, I think a guy like Cantlay is a little bit more boom or bust. I, I think Hideki's an, an interesting target. Um, you know, another guy that played at the Olympics, a lot of these guys did, I guess the one thing I would say about the shamble more so than anything though, is he did have COVID. He pulled out of the Olympics because of it. I don't really know where he's at based off of that. It's not a reason not to play him. Um, he's one of those guys where his upside when he does turn it on is as good, if not better than anybody else. So I think when you can get a guy like him at, you know, six, 7% ownership, 
I kind of think that might rise a little bit by time before this ends up closing, just because people know what Bryson can bring to the table. But from a statistical fit, my model does not like him. He does take one of those jumps. So um, one of the things I do is, is I grade my model three different ways. I grade it from an overall rank, which is just kind of the, the in between of volatility and, and safety for it. Then I grade it for volatility, which is your GPPs. And then I grade it for safety, which is cash games. And DeChambeau is one of the guys that makes a jump for me. He's six spots better when it comes to GPPs than he is from um, overall. You know, he gets a little bit worse for safety, which is what we would expect with it. But um, negative value for me on the surface, but a positive value if I'm just looking for ownership versus model rank, which is one of the things I try to use to figure out where are the guys that I'm higher than the general public on. So, um as I said, can't play everybody. I think it's one of those things that you're going to have to make a decision with Bryson. As of right now, I'm going to kind of just be out, I think. But, you know, it's early in the week. If that ownership drops to like 2 or 3%, I obviously can be convinced to jump back into the fray with it. But let's jump down now to the $8,000 range, which is led off by Tony Fiena at $8,900. Runs all the way down to Tommy Fleetwood at 8000 Josephine, I'll let you start this range of some of the people that you like here. Yeah, so um, looking at this range, I had highlighted Tony Finau. Um, originally, when I was first trying to figure out how I wanted to kind of present my my picks and the people that I liked, um, I was looking at it and I was kind of looking between Tony Finau and Patrick Reed. Um, and I ended up thinking that Tony, might, Tony Finau might be a little bit of a better pick just simply because I looked at just green and regulation percentages. Um, and then with Finau, his proximities from 150 to 175 is a lot higher. Um, so I ended up thinking that Finau is a better pick there. Um, and then another person in this group that the way that I weighted my model ranked pretty high was Abraham Answer. Um, obviously pretty high ownership percentage already. Um, but I liked him just because so I looked a little bit at driving accuracy just off the tee, obviously with those hazards, you want to stay out of them. Um, and then his green regulation percentage is at 69%, which when I played for UK, one of the things we were aiming for was always 72%. Um, that was like our gold standard. We wanted to hit it. We wanted to be above that. And so obviously with how many tournaments they're playing, how many rounds they've got in these stats, 69% is really, really solid. Um, and then again, just with the um, approach yardages of this tournament, he was really solid there. And then looking at last year, he finished in the top 20. So I just felt like everything was kind of falling into place with him. Um, the only thing was just that ownership percentage, which I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that as to why people seem to be pick, uh, picking him up as well. Answer's a very popular DFS choice weekly. He's always one of the most popular choices. Okay. And part of the reason for that is it's just he gives you a safe floor. You kind of know what you're going to get, as you said. Hits a bunch of greens and regulations. He, he's going to be safe. He's going to be a top 25 player in most fields. Here's my one problem that I have with answer. And my model loves him too. I want to preface it by saying that in these no-cut tournaments, you do need win equity at the end of the day. And answer is a guy that's proven that, I mean, he has not been able to cross the finish line. Sure, at $8,300, you don't necessarily need a victory out of him. But at 18 to 20%, there is some of that that's going to come into play. I kind of just prefer using him as a cash game play. I think he's super safe. I think you can pencil him in there and kind of just, and the one thing I want to say about that is when you look at cash game plays in a no cut tournament, it's a little bit different than cash game plays in a full field event where there's a cut. 
So safety doesn't become as relevant as it would in a normal tournament. I am more inclined. You're still going to need good finishes, but I'm more inclined to take birdie makers and things. Now, in this particular situation, I do think answer fits the mold of what we're looking for. So I think he makes sense as a cash game play in this particular situation, but I don't know. I mean, he's never somebody that I really end up backing in GPPs. You know, give me the 12th place finish that he gives us and we'll move on in cash games and be happy with it. Um, you know, somebody for me that I really liked, which I'd be curious to hear where you have him in your model, is Corey Connors. So Connors was fifth overall for me. He was sixth when it came to upside. He was 11th for safety. A lot of that is stemming from he's 14th in my weighted proximity. He's 12th in ball striking, 4th in GIR percentage. Uh, the putter is always going to be what rules the day with him, and, and that's going to decide what kind of tournament he has. But really good par 4 scorer, a guy that's been good at TPC properties. I, I kind of almost would rather take the Corey Connors route and play him in a GPP and, you know, save 5 to you know, 7% ownership than going with answer there. And I think Connor's in a GPP answer in a cash game is a pretty good start with one of those two there. Yeah, absolutely. So my, my model actually put answer at seventh and core Connor's at eighth. So they were right neck and neck for me as well. Um, and looking at, I mean, for me, it was just, I was looking at it and um, I obviously waited putting um, just cause to me, that seems like such a big deal. Um, and so I think that's what brought him down a little bit and why I ended up uh, talking more about answer than Connors. But again, I mean, not really a big difference. They're both going to be pretty safe. Um, he grids really well with approaches. Um, putting's okay. <laughs> but proximities are also um, just from 150 to 200. He's really solid there as well. So, I mean, a great pick for this tournament at the end of the day. Yeah, and I don't mind weighing putting. Like, I don't like it as much here necessarily, which I did put a little bit on it. But the thing is with putting, you do need to make putts at the end of the day. Like, that's an important thing that comes into play here. I just don't think that putting more than, like, I mean, 10% would be pushing it for any given tournament that I do. Like, if I incorporate putting into my model, it's generally in that, like, 5 to 7.5% range. And more so than that, even I'd rather find like the weighted proximity and mix it with the make ranges historically at the venue. So if, you know, I don't have them up in front of me for this event, but if 25% of the putts are being made from five to 10 feet and you know 20% of the putts are being made from 10 to 15 feet, take those numbers, take the numbers from the proximity ranges and try to find the guys that are most likely to give themselves an opportunity and then make the putt. That's more of how I like to grade putting than anything else. I did weigh it from five to 10 feet here because I think you're going to have to make them for birdies. I think you're going to have to make them to avoid bogey, but you know, it's just not something that I'm going to have my model be decided on, on who makes the most putts. Because if we play that game, Louis going to be number one in the model and Louis going to win the tournament. And I do think that, you know, pressure comes into play and those putts don't drop as frequently on Sundays late. And, you know, then all of a sudden you see those guys blow themselves off the map. When it's all said and done. I mean, I, I was to talk about a couple more guys in this range. I think Finau is always interesting, like just because of the ownership. He's a good around the green player. The form does not look as good as I would like it to be lately. But at least we know he's a guy like anytime he's less than $9,000. I think some of that lack of win equity he has becomes a little bit, you know, reduced and we can look at him. Fitzpatrick is never a guy I love. I think he's okay for cash. I'm not going to play him in GPPs. Uh, Reed is a guy where at five to 6% ownership, 
I do think he has upside to win the tournament. He's never going to pop in a statistical model. He's never going to be a guy that looks great there, but I, I think he's fine to throw in as a dart throw. I'm not going to talk anybody out of that. Shane Lowry graded as one of the safer plays for me at 8,600. Uh, my model continues to love Webb Simpson. And I say this every single week when I go on a show, you know, I don't know if Webb is just not in the right spot because he's hurt or what's going on. We haven't seen the best version of him lately. I, I do know that he came 19th at the Open Championship. That's a reason for me to be optimistic. He has good course history here with a 12th and a second over the last two years. I will be putting him into GPP lineups just because I do think his upside to win the tournament is there. Um, a, a guy like Neiman, he produces a ton of spin on the ball with his irons. I mean, you could look at that as a negative or positive. He's going to have to control it, but uh, he's in play. And then for me, I don't know. I mean, Fleetwood at 8,000 is the guy who always continues to kind of just be a person that I just don't end up taking. Like I realize at some point it ends up biting you. He has a fourth year in 2019. I just don't think he's as good as he used to be. Um, I think the stats kind of show that with it. So in a GPP, sure, if your model's popping him out as somebody that's worth playing, okay. But I'm not going to play him in cash games. I just think there's too much downside for what he can possess. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. Tommy Flew is probably one of my favorite players to watch just because I like his energy and I like um, just how he is on the course. Um, but my model did not like him. And um, you haven't really heard his name up top in, in a while. And like for someone... For me, at least starting out, I am getting back into following the PJ Tour. So, like for me, looking at this, I was like, "Well, I haven't heard him in a while." So, I looked at the stats; they also kind of lined up with it, and I was like, "Well, he's not not really going to be my favorite here at all." Yeah, it's really the proximity ranges when we look at it. Like Fleetwood mm -hmm. at his best, he was a great long iron player. When I, I run a two-year rolling model with the way I do my stats, he's 28th in this field from 175 to 200. He's 54th from 200 plus. Yeah, only about 14% of shots come from 200 plus, but, you know, just across the board, anything that's pretty much outside of 125 is not quite where you want it to be. So look, I mean, Fleetwood looked fine at the Olympics. I think like maybe he turns it around with the irons. I think the irons have looked better recently than they've been in the past, but if he, it's another guy, like if he beats me, he beats me with it. Like can't play everybody. We're going to have to pick and choose where the ownership goes with it. And I want to see a little bit more from him before I, I jump back into the fray on him. But let's move down to the $7,000 range. And the $7,000 range, actually, we'll run it down to $7,500 just to make this a little bit more condensed so we don't have the whole field that we're talking about here. But, you know, a guy like Jason Kokrak, going to be super popular, grades out well for me. The one guy that I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, where your model has him, you, what your opinion is on him, is Sung J.M. So, M for me is 23rd in my model. So technically there's a slight value there, but the thing that I like about him is he is the number one player in my model when it comes to my differential compared to the general public. So what that means is, is in GPP contests, my model thinks that he is going to outproduce what the general public believes he's going to produce. And I can tell you why. And it's the same thing with Siwoo Kim when we get to him in a second. These two guys did not get out of military service. And I think everybody is thinking that their games are not going to be where they should be. They're coming from overseas now to come play this tournament. Look, Sungjae's irons are going to have to be better than they've been in the past. I, I understand that part of it. 
But at, you know, four to five percent at seven thousand seven hundred dollars, I do think he has win equity. And when we get into this range, a lot of the win equity kind of starts getting sucked out of this tournament very quickly. So I kind of like the upside that Sung Jay provides in GPP contests. I'm curious to hear what you think about him. Yeah, so my model did not like him very much. And it's because his approaches haven't been very great from the yardages that I'm looking at for this tournament. Um, I did like him when it came to, uh, where is it? My bad, I don't have this pulled up. Oh, there it is. So I really liked him when it came to kind of around the greens and scrambling wise, just like, as you said um, earlier, these greens are small. You can be aggressive with like good wise out of the fairway, but you're still gonna get a bad bounce every now and then. You're gonna run out of green regardless, but his scrambling percentages are around 61%. Um, and then looking at also just his driving accuracy and then his green regulation percentage, um, driving accuracy, almost 69%, green regulation, just over 68%. So all of these things I'm looking at are really good. My model didn't like him. And I think it's just simply because I weighted the approach shots pretty heavily. Um, but then when you go back and look at it, he does seem to be a solid player. And as you said, at 7,700, 4% ownership, it won't hurt. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like the thing is, is he's 47th over his last 24 rounds in approach. That's below his two-year two-year baseline average I have for him. Um, he's been being carried by the putter. He's seventh over his last 24 rounds in this field. He's 20th over a two-year baseline. Like those are not the stats that you necessarily want. You don't want your irons to be going the wrong direction and your putter to be what's carrying you. And and you know, there's a lot of reasons, but. I don't know. My thought is, is Sungjae has the ability to turn it on more so than a lot of these other guys. He's 16th at TPC properties. That may not sound like the most impressive stat, but it's not going to take him out of it. He's 20th in weighted par four. He's seventh in bogey avoidance. He's 15th in scrambling. He is, you know, as you said, driving accuracy, he's fourth. Like those are things that I like looking at because if at some point the irons can turn around, he has the upside to win this tournament, and that's more than I can say about a lot of these guys. I'm going to play him in GPPs. I, I am. I think in cash games, he's unplayable just for all the reasons you mentioned with it. But I think at 5%, it's a way to pivot away from a lot of these popular choices that are around him. Like, I, I really like Jason Kokrak. I don't really have anything negative to say. He's a positive value for me. But at 15% difference in ownership, I, I would rather pivot on the Sungjae who I, you know, I think Kokrak is another guy who's been carried by the putter a lot this year. So give me a guy that's going to be 15% less owned that I think can win the tournament. Like, sure, there's volatility to it, but um, I'm going to have some of him. If we drop a little bit lower here, we have Terrell Hatton at 7,400, who just continues to trend in the wrong direction for whatever reason. He's somebody that my model always likes and hasn't liked him the last couple of weeks. We have Sergio Garcia at 7,300. Adam Scott at 7,200, Leishman at 7,100. Then we wrap it out, wrap it up with Horschel at 7,100, Rose at 7,000, and Ian Poulter at 7,000. Anybody in that range that you liked? Um, no, really, the only person that I was going to mention was Terrell Hutton. And I basically put like my model grade in really well, but I literally wrote, I'm hesitant. And it's only just because he's had a rough go the last couple of tournaments. Um, but I mean, if he can stay consistent, he's a solid player, but I guess you can say that for almost every golfer, really. Um, so my model really liked him looking at it. I, I was very hesitant. Um, I was actually gonna ask you um, about uh, Will Zalatoris 
Um, obviously, 7,900, low ownership. Am I model really liked him? Am I missing something here? Like, has he just been trending in the wrong direction or something? Yeah, 59th at the Charles Schwab, uh, miscut at the U.S. Open, 77th at the Rocket Mortgage, withdrew um, at the Open. So, I mean, the form isn't in the right direction right now. He's one of those guys where, from a safety perspective, cash game, he's unplayable. Uh, the stats like him just because, like, I'm running longer-term data than the average person is. Like, if you look at the last 24 rounds, he's not going to look as good. If you look at a two-year sample size, all of a sudden he starts looking pretty good. And not that he has two years worth of data. I don't mean it in that sense. It's just if you date it back longer than, you know, what the average person runs it, he starts looking better. So, I mean, as a GPP play, he's a positive value based off of that. Uh, at 5% ownership, I mean, you can take a chance with him. I, I, I don't hate it. Um, I kind of would just rather play Sungjae because you have that same negative flow. I just think you have a little bit better form that Sungjae's bringing to the table. And then the one problem I have with Hatton, he's another guy, grades fine for GPP, doesn't look as great for cash games with it. What happens when you put him in water? Like, I'm afraid he's going to start breaking clubs. He's going to start imploding on the course. Like, if the form's not there and the attitude's not there, like there's a reason why he came 69th place last year at this venue. And if that happens again, he may just decide to put an 85 up on the card out of nowhere. So, I mean, for him to have to stay four days in a no-cut tournament, I'm a little bit afraid that one of those four days that he kind of just blows himself off the face of the map at some point. But, um, you know, if I'm looking at these guys, I, I think Sergio's going to be very popular. My model likes him. It's because of the ball striking. He's another guy who just has to do better with the putter. Um, Adam Scott's kind of living in this like bizarro world right now where you normally think that his irons are what controls and, and leads him into success. It's been the putter. So if the irons can turn around, I think Adam Scott is a guy that at least we know we, he has the pedigree to find success here. Um, technically a very slight value for me. Leishman's a negative value, but there is a lot I liked about Leishman when I looked. Ownership's just 3%. Positive value when I'm looking at ownership for him. He just stormed the leaderboard at the Travelers where he came in third place. I know he missed the cut at the Open, which was an event that I kind of thought a lot of people were kind of thinking he'd find success at. But I think at 3% ownership at $7,100, he has enough potential. Um, the same argument can be made with Justin Rose. Like these, Rose is a guy who's a major championship winner at $7,000. Like that's just at least something worth looking at. 11th here at the WGC in, in 2019. Um, kind of like him a little bit more for cash than anything else. Um, I think there's some things he doesn't do as well. I think you're going to need a really big performance, but the thing is, is at 7,000, that's not necessarily the end all be all for it. And then, um, I mean, that's about it for me in the $7,000 range. Like I don't love Horschel. I don't love Poulter. I mean, I think Poulter makes some sense in cash games. I think you can play him there. I, I don't really love playing him in gpps but uh yeah i mean i kind of agree with you it gets thin very fast once you get down into this region and it gets even worse when we get down to the six thousand dollar range like for me the highest ranked guy i have is 28th overall in this range i do have a couple guys in the 30 range with it but you know i mean these are guys that are going to fill out rosters for you and you're going to need some of them um for me some of my favorite plays in this range would be I think Cameron Davis makes some sense. I, I just think that he has the upside. Sam Burns makes some sense. He has the upside. Burns is going to be very popular. Burns is always popular. But 
at least we know he has the upside to find success, in, especially on Bermuda. Um, Ortiz's short game is somebody I always really like at $6,700. Ryan Palmer's the highest ranked guy for me at 6,500. He's 28th overall, 25th in a GPP perspective with it. Really, his biggest problem is always going to be how he plays out of the bunkers. That's going to be, you know, you can't make a mess of that. Um, Siwoo Kim, as I said, with Sung Jae, just another guy a bunch of people aren't going to want to play because of what he did. I think at 6,400, he's a player's championship winner. We know he can win the big tournament if he turns it on. Um, I don't mind taking a shot with him. I don't mind taking a shot with Lucas Glover. He just won recently at the John Deere. And then it just... It gets thin. Um, maybe Wilco at 6,000 if, I mean, you're just really trying to throw a dart here. But, uh, I mean, that's about it for me in the $6,000 range. Like, I'm going to condense this core down. Very, and, and by the time that I condense this core down, it'll be less, like, of those names, I'll condense it down to a couple guys and kind of just use those guys probably across the board and just increase some volatility. And I think it's one of those weeks where – you're going to have to increase the volatility because it's a very volatile tournament to begin with. And by playing a really big core of players, all you're doing is putting yourself in a spot to where you're either asking to like break even or lose money. I'd rather have the boomer bust nature to it. So uh, and there's decisions that are going to have to be made. Uh, we're recording this for full transparency on a Monday. Uh, you know, that's going to be ownership's going to dictate a lot of these things for me, but it's going to be a very small range from like less than 7,400 and, uh, that's pretty much where I'm at. Yeah. Um, so my model actually liked some of these people down here. It's not as in-depth as yours, which is probably why. Um, my model liked Sam Burns, just looked at his green regulation percentages at 67%, um, a good scrambling or a decent scrambling percentage at 55 But I mean, that makes me a little hesitant just with smaller greens. Um, uh, my model also liked Matthew Wolf, but I just remember like watching him when he was like, in his or when he was making big news and I mean just the ability to make those big putts and everything um not sure where he's been trending lately um but my model did like him based on his stats um trying to look um yeah actually so I had Siwoo Kim as well he's 23rd actually in my model but um correct me if I'm wrong but didn't he withdraw from the John Deere um, citing like a back injury or something, or is that someone else? <laughs> no, he, he did. But the thing is with that, uh, like him and Sung Jae were so worried about trying to get out of military service and he didn't have a very good first day. And it was one of those things where it's like, why stick around if you don't have to stick around with it? And I think he just wanted to get himself over to Japan and try to get ready for that. I mean, for him, he pulled himself out of the open championship. Sung mm -hmm. Jae pulled himself out of the open championship for that reason. And unfortunately for them, it didn't work out to where they got a medal with it. But um, yeah, I, I like some, I'm sorry. I like Sibu. I think he's a big game hunter. I mean, if you can win the player's championship, you can win any tournament in the world. And, and I, I think that he makes a lot of sense here at this price range. I think Burns, yeah, the scrambling numbers may not be where you want them to be, but when you get down into this range, everybody's going to have problems. Like it's across the board. You're essentially just looking for some sort of a template of something that you like and then rolling with it and hoping that you get correct. And the thing with Wolf is there is some stuff to like. 39th at the 3M Open isn't probably as good as you would like to see. The 58th at the Rocket Mortgage, the miscut at the Travelers, 15th at the US Open. The, the problem with Wolf is he hasn't been in the best mental health state coming into these tournaments. And I think that's kind of one of the things where we don't know where, where he's at right now. And the results looked really great at the U.S. Open when he made his return. And he's kind of just been hit and miss other than that. But 
Yeah, I mean, at $6,800, there is a lot to like about him. He's seventh from my weighted proximity numbers. He's pretty much, I mean, seventh through 25th from 125 yards up, no matter how I look at it. He's 12th for me in total driving, which is being led by the driving distance. I mean, obviously the accuracy is what comes into play to make it a little bit more negative. He's going to have to avoid water off the tee with that, but uh, good from five to 10 feet, good overall birdie or better. Like there is something to like with him and there is an upside. Like we know at his best, he's a top, you know, X player in the world. We'll say he's a top 25 player in the world if not better than that. So I think in this range, you're just kind of trying to find something that might stick and Wolf definitely at the ownership and the upside he possesses. Like I don't have a problem with him whatsoever. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. I was just looking at, I mean, ownership percentage and just being $6,800. I was like, Oh, well he has the potential. We know he can perform. And so that's why I was, I was a little curious about that. But other than that, I mentioned I have about the same comments and everything. Um, it gets really hard to distinguish down here. <laughs> um, so yeah, and I mean, I probably wouldn't go much lower than like. I mean, we start pushing it with Palmer a little bit. I, I mean, you could maybe make an argument that that like Stuart Sink is still fine at sixty five hundred. He's been so boomer busto in some of these rounds. Siwoo, as we mentioned, at sixty four Glover, but like past that, it kind of starts getting thin very fast with it. And the other thing about Wolf, just to throw out there. You are guaranteed to get, I mean, unless he pulls out of the tournament, I don't want to make it like that's not a possibility. He's been doing that recently during some of these events, citing different injuries or different problems with it. But assuming that he does not do that, you get four rounds out of him here. He's a birdie maker that can find upside. And I just think, I mean, even if you get, you know, two really high end days from him to where he makes a bunch of birdies, like he can outscore his finishing position. And that's really what we're looking at in these WGCs and these no-cut tournaments is just the ability to score points like, you know, 75 to 80% of the points that you score in DraftKings come from birdies you can make. Like obviously finishing position and streaks and things of that nature come into effect. But really you want birdie makers and you want guys that can make birdies. So I think Wolf's the wild card in this range. I think he's the guy that really anything could happen. But at the ownership, I mean, you can win a GPP off of him. Yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely agree. I just, I was surprised to see him that well. I'm not, not going to lie there. Um, but that's yeah. just, that's just me not, you know, just not really getting into the PJ tournament and, and trying to get back into it and understanding like where the trends have been. So that makes a lot more sense. But I, I think that it's something worth looking at. And I, I definitely think that people should consider doing it, but, uh, I mean, I guess that's it for the WGC here. I mean, I, that's my thoughts on it. I think we wrapped it up pretty nicely. I do want to let you talk a little bit about the Barracuda Championship, which is at Old Greenwood. Uh, you have some experience playing that course, and I will let you talk about that. Um, we're not going to go into a long breakdown of it, but I'll let you have the floor with that. Yeah, absolutely. So I just, um, when I looked at the PGA Tour schedule and I noticed it was at Old Greenwood, I was like, hmm, unless there's another course that I'm thinking of, I'm pretty sure I've played this like three or four times than when I was in high school. And so, yeah, Old Greenwood um, up in Truckee Tahoe. I definitely didn't get the yardages and everything that they're playing it at. Um, but I just thought I'd give a little rundown of what I remember about the course and everything. Um, essentially, a lot of driving accuracy. So they've got those tall trees lining um, both sides of the fairways. You're in those trees. It's a hard time getting out. You're hitting off of pine needles. You've got tiny little tree trunks everywhere. Um, 
and also just with the way that the course is set up, where your landing spots are, there's usually a bunker or there's usually some sharp turn. There's going to be a tree in your way. Something's going to happen where you're going to have to be really, really accurate off the tee. Um, and then when you look at approaches as well, uh, the architect of this course, they just really wanted to test you. Because if you look at the greens, almost every single hole, you're going to have these deep, deep bunkers, huge faces. I mean, you're going to have to get real, real fancy out of um, those greenside bunkers, especially going onto a green that is, I want to say almost every single green has at least one tier. Um, there's actually one hole that I remember having three. And it was really fun when you hit it on the front of the green and the pin was in the back and you're going up two tiers. Um, so definitely it's it's more of a target course for sure. Uh, you're really going to want to get your uh, yardages down to a T. Um, and then also looking at it, you're up in Truckee Tahoe. So air is thinner, ball is going to travel further. So just being able to account for that, it's it's a pretty fun time. And I think you were talking about how it's, it's scored differently or something like that. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that's a really good breakdown that you just gave to everybody. And, and I will have a model that comes out on Wednesday that I will release on Twitter for everybody. Play around with, you know, do what you think. Take what some of what Josephine just said. But I believe it's still stable for scoring, which is pretty much kind of equivalent, not quite, but to what the DraftKings scoring is. So it's going to reward people that can score. It's more important to score eagles and birdies than anything else. So uh, my biggest takeaway from that is just find guys that are good birdie makers and guys that are going to give themselves an opportunity to score. I think that that's more so than anything else. I mean, statistically, we're going to need the stats to also incorporate that, but find birdie makers, find guys that can get hot with their putter and guys that are good with the proximity ranges and can avoid some of the problems that Josephine just talked about with it. But yeah, I will release that model on Wednesday for everybody. We'll get a little bit more in depth with that. But I think that's it for this show this week. You know, I want to give a big shout out to Golfworks for the opportunity to do this. I want to give an extra big shout out to Gianni Maglioco, who works for Golfworks. He's one of my good friends. Um, he's somebody, and I, as I said, I've been in this industry for four years. He is arguably, by my money, the best writer in this industry. So everything he puts out for Golfworks is just spectacular. Be sure to give him a follow on Twitter. I'm always interacting with him on there. He always likes interacting with the general public. So give him a follow. And just, you know, thanks to Golfworks for this opportunity. And thank you, Josephine, for doing the show with me. Like, I have really high expectations for where we're going to take this. I, I like that it's a different and unique view from the rest of the industry of, of how we do it from everybody else. Obviously, you bring the playing background with it. And I bring more of the statistical breakdowns with it. But thank you so much for joining me on this. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I mean, like we talked about this before, I guess I can let the viewers know. Originally when Spencer reached out to me about this opportunity, I had actually drafted um, to a, a message to decline and be like, hey, you know, I'm not really comfortable in front of a camera. And then I thought about it and I was like, you know what? I love golf and I've been, uh, I've stopped playing competitively for a while and love to get back into it. And so this is just a really great opportunity. So I just want to thank you for reaching out to me and, you know, taking the time to explain how all of this works. Obviously got a long way to go in terms of the statistical world, but I'm really glad I can bring more of a, a player mentality to this and kind of talk more of that background. Um, I also wanted to just thank Golfworks. I mean, I know you've been in this industry for a few years now, um, but I mean, as a player, we know Golfworks for releasing like clubs and everything as they come out. And I always love like going through there and, and reading all of those. Um, 
but to have this kind of new show, I mean, it's it's really exciting to see where it goes, and I'm excited to learn and grow just from you and and as we do this as well. Yeah, and Golfworks is like the number one go-to shop for clubs and everything, as you mentioned. And my goal is is to make them one of the top shops for fantasy and betting. So. Thank you to them for the opportunity to do this. We also are going to have a unique show where we're going to bring on players on tour. We're going to talk to people. We're going to have interviews. It's going to be more than just DFS golf with this. It's going to be obviously a lot of statistical data with it, but this is going to be a show for the general public and we want everybody to get behind it. So you can find Josephine on Twitter at jchang1020. You can find me on Twitter at Tioff Sports, and you can find us together at Be The Number Pod. Thank you for tuning in. Make some money this week and we will be back next week. Good luck, guys.